Hey, everybody. Welcome to Midnight Revolution. Midnight Revolution is a podcast celebrating the friendships that anchor us in life and the deeply centering and transformative talks that accompany them. I'm Malisa Joes Khan, a family medicine physician, entrepreneur, wife, and mother of two. And I'm Catherine Akiko Day, an art director for film and television, a painter, crossfitter, and activist. Our music is by Alishaba Etoop. My sister, Malika Joes, is an amazing advanced practice nurse specializing in palliative care and hospice. Before she entered this field, she had many years of experience as an intensive care and trauma nurse. Nursing can be a grueling field, and one thing that helped her persevere was developing her yoga practice. She is now also a certified yoga teacher. Malika's thoughtful and sincere approach allows her to connect with and care for others. She now uses this gift to treat her patients as they deal with terminal diagnoses and transition from the physical world. We talked to her today about how she understands and even embraces concepts around death and dying. I'm so excited because <laughs> we never get to have this kind of quality time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Melissa, like, why did you choose nursing in the first place? Like, even besides what you've gone into recently as like a specialty, like why nursing? Um, great question. Uh, that... I always wanted to be in the healthcare field. And growing up, I always just thought it was, you had to be a doctor because right. I mean, nursing isn't very well known. It's not very well known. I think even in like Indian culture and over there, um, it's that you have to be a doctor. Yeah. There's really nothing else, but there's so many fields in healthcare and there are so many opportunities to like still flesh out that part of my interest without being a doctor. What I didn't like about taking the traditional MD approach was that there was no bedside connection and mm. also just the schooling was unappealing to me. Um, and I remember taking one of those like tests in high school with my guidance counselor and it resulted in nursing being my strongest, well-suited field or career. Wow. Yeah. And I, uh, I didn't think too much about it, actually, when I was applying to uh, colleges. I just applied to general sciences pretty much everywhere. And I did a little research at, on Drexel's programs, where I eventually went to nursing school, Mm -hmm. um, and realized that they had a pretty good nursing school. And I was like, well, I'll just apply and see what happens. And it actually just kind of worked out as well. And, um, which is like unique because you went right into a bachelor of nursing, which is a higher, mm -hmm. a more intensive degree than, uh, like a licensed practicing nurse LPN, right. Mm. Which yes. some people are. Yes. So there's many different degrees, even in the nursing field. Like you said, you can be an associate level where you just kind of focus on clinicals and it is yes, technically a lesser degree, but not less valuable. Not less. Yeah. Lesser intensive with schooling. Yes, exactly. So the schooling is shorter. Um, classes are more focused on just a clinical approach. BSN bachelors of science, um, is, more broad, more holistic, more in depth, um, and also 
you know, more advanced degree. And then, you know, from there, you can get, get an MSN or a DNP as well, furthering your education. So, um, yeah. Is that it? And then, <laughs> and then once you started to, so you like kind of had it in the back of your mind, like, okay, I took this test, yeah. like maybe this will fit. I'm going to choose this school that happens to have uh, a nursing school. And then once you started to go in that direction, what did you think? Like, obviously you kept going with it. So what mm -hmm. was it about it that kept you going and going, oh, that test was right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so quite honestly, uh, nursing school was really hard. It yeah. was really hard for me and I hate taking tests just in a, in a general manner. Um, and it was really difficult. Um, but the one thing that I loved were the clinicals. And actually seeing patients, real people with real illnesses that were there in real time. And it wasn't just that I read a chapter on kidney disease. I saw somebody truly getting dialysis from their kidney failure. And it was, it just made that connection so tangible that I was like, oh, I, I do like this. But what I like about it is this connection with people and helping them in a medical way, um, mm -hmm. not just helping them period, but helping them in this, in this kind of manner. Yeah. Um, and I truly actually really didn't like the, you know, lecture portion of it. Um, but the clinical part was really what made me stick with it and keep mm -hmm. going and love what I do. Yeah. I mean, and there was always like a joke when you came home, that are like our family friends would be like, Oh, do you have like another test? Cause you had like a test every week or something, you know, like you had so many tests and it's so grueling. And I kind of use that word grueling. Cause not only is the education grueling, but the work is grueling and you right. have to really like persevere through, through it. And you did. I also love <laughs> this story from when you were in, in, uh, nursing school about that class, which is ultimately what we're talking about today. Do you want to tell that story? I mean, as, as not as weird as it was. Uh, I don't know exactly what the story is, but I know you're talking about my death and dying elective. Yeah. Um, and in you know, nursing school, like we had our core classes and there was very little flexibility for additional elective classes that were you know, even in the, um, in the program rather in like, let alone something like taking a Spanish class. Um, and I took an elective called death and death dying. And <laughs> and that's, I that's, what's that? What's that? We made a song. Yeah, of course. We made a song about it. That's the weird part. How does it go? Oh God. And I <laughs> It's we not even a song. It it's oh, just yeah. a jingle. It's just, it's, we just it's, together, we have to say it together. Okay. okay. It's not, it's not even Why did funny. you make a jingle? Was it like, because we were chatting know. about it? I don't know. We make a jingle about a lot of things. I thought it was a good segue because I do remember what you talked about in that class. And I thought, oh. I thought the way that you 
thought it was really eye-opening and the way that you embraced kind of the ideas of it and you faced the challenge of doing things like um you said you had to organize your own funeral oh yeah what would it be like And, and I was like wow that's like that's pretty intense and the way you were talking about it kind of with a free curiosity and embracing the concepts of it and it's it's a class and it's an elective and and I don't, you know, at that moment, we didn't, I didn't really think anything of it. Like, this is what you're going to do in like your right. specialty as a nurse practitioner. I didn't really think about that. But at the time I was like, well, that's so cool that you, you, you're, it felt creative to you. You know, it felt like it was, is a creative process for you to be involved in it. And it's, it seemed like something you attached onto a little bit. And it was just like funny. Cause we had that funny jingle, the way that we said the class name. Yeah. <laughs> You, I do remember that you were excited about telling me about the projects that were part of it. Mm. And you thought it was really kind of like eye-opening. You're like, wow, it's like really interesting, like to do these things. And again, it's not anything so life-changing at that moment, but I think it was interesting to tie it into what you do today. Yeah. So tell us about that part. Okay. Well, why I really got into um, palliative. So right now I am a a certified palliative and hospice nurse practitioner. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so palliative care, it's really um, not well known, but what it really does is it uh, attempts to improve quality of life for patients with terminal diagnoses um, or chronic conditions. So it is an ongoing conversation implemented at the time of diagnosis of any chronic or terminal condition. So you can have anything from cancers, of course, to heart disease, uh, lung disease, uh, liver, kidneys, anything, um, that is life limiting in any way, Parkinson's disease, dementia, and it can range very widely. So um, we attempt to understand and talk to patients of what their goals and values are for what their care is. Hmm. And that is different for everyone. So it is a lot of talking to patients about what they value in their life and Mm -hmm. what they want for themselves with this understanding of how chronic or terminal uh, diagnoses play out. And how is that different? And how is that different from say, okay, you have Parkinson's and you go to Parkinson's specialist neurologist and they give you a plan, right? Like how is that different from what they would do in that scenario? What would you bring to the table? Or, um, how do you, what conversation do you have differently or even what would that look like? Yeah. So it's more of a focus on, um, not only just the physical aspects uh, or medical aspects of things, but rather psychosocial, um, spiritual, and Mm family-based. So it's not just about a person and their diagnosis, or it's not just about a diagnosis, rather. It's about the person and who they are, making sure they understand what this means. So yes, I have Parkinson's, but I have a slight tremor in my hand, and this is all that happens but say that I am a piano player or I am a painter, that is gonna impact me much differently than somebody who is 
a radio host. I don't know. Something that does not involve the hands at all. So how does this illness, whatever that might be, that is life-limiting in a way or terminal, how does this affect you in how you are in society, in your family, in your world, in your life? What does this actually mean to you as an individual? So it's a very personalized approach to care mm. because we, we um, listen to patients, which- It doesn't seem, happen all the time. Yes, which seems simple and expected and commonplace, but actually isn't quite the opposite. Um, yeah. One of the reasons why I initially, my uh, degree is in family nurse practitioner. And one of the reasons why I did not want to go into a traditional primary care role is because there's no time to talk to patients. Yeah. There's no time to understand what a person is going through or how they're feeling about their disease or illnesses or concerns in a matter of 15 minutes or 30 minutes at best. And there's just no time to do anything. And I did not like that. Um, And I was lucky actually to stumble upon an open palliative care role at, in Philly. And I remembered that I always really valued what the palliative care team did when I worked in the ICUs. What are some of the scenarios? Cause we've talked about this a lot of like, when you were in that grueling, you know, being an intensive care nurse and the stories you told and how much you put in, and obviously everyone in the healthcare fields, physicians, other kinds of staff that are working in the intensive care world, it's intensive. It's like intense care, right? It's intensive care for the patients. And it's also intense for the caregivers, the providers Yeah, for the bedside nurse that's in the ICU. Um, you know, some like context is like on a floor in a hospital, a nurse might take care of how many patients Mall. On a regular, a regular yeah, like a med surge. Uh, maybe four to six, six to eight overnight. Yeah. So you're, you, you have a bunch of people, but in the ICU, how many are you probably taking care of? Two or one. Two or one. So you're just wow. like the person for that person, right? And their family, wow. you're the contact. And then you're there how many hours a day, usually? Twelve. So you're there like 12 hours a day, maybe three or four days a week. Um, so that person and the family, I remember when I rotated through those kind of things, you get to know those nurses yeah. very well. They are, they know that patient, they right. know when they went to the bathroom, they know that they didn't go to the bathroom. They know that the family is about upset about something. Mm-hmm. They know that the patient uh, wanted something to be done before they got intubated and that thing never got done. And the family's wondering about like, they know the intimate details a lot of times right. about way more than you would even expect. But that can have like also an emotional toll on the person because you are in charge of managing these things. And a lot of times, and I'm going to ask you to tell, you know, the stories and perspectives on this is that they come to you. Family will come to you because the person is intubated. They're sleeping, right? They're in a coma, drug induced coma. And they'll say like, what do we do? Right. Mm -hmm. So they will oftentimes go to the nurse, the person who's there all the time, essentially, because the physicians are not there all the time. They're taking care of different things, doing procedures. And they'll say like, what do we do? You know, like, should we do this or that? Should we try this medication? Should we, what should, what should we do? So can you talk about that part of it, that perspective? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I worked in a surgical ICU in Pittsburgh 
And um, we mainly did surgical oncology. So a lot of tumor debulking, um, intense surgical oncology procedures. Um, and we would also get overflow of regular medical ICU patients. So we got a mishmash of everything. So a lot of the times these patients, like you said, are extremely sick mm-hmm. and they are intubated, they are sedated. Um, and you know, the doctors would come and talk to family and say like, well, what do you want? If their heart stops, if their breathing stops, like what would this person want for themselves? And they're like, do everything. Of course, do everything. If you ask any person, if you have a chance of living, they're going to opt for living. That's not like, uh, that's a no brainer. That's a no brainer, yeah. But what didn't happen was the explanation of what that actually meant. Right, right, Um, right. Bringing somebody back, doing CPR, uh, putting in a breathing tube is not hard. It's the repercussions of those actions that are hard. And dealing with what happens after of the, you know, fluid overload and the infections and the lines and the procedures and the scans and the, um, the uh, skin breakdown mm-hmm. and all of those other things right, that right. no one knows about. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I thought, well, it's probably painful. It is. Like, I mean, there's a longer it, recovery, but. Sure. You know, and when you do CPR, um, I actually don't like to say this when I explain CPR or resuscitation to patients, you, there's a high likelihood that you're going to break ribs. Yeah. But when you explain it as, you know, if their heart stops, we'll have to do CPR and we're going to break their ribs. This isn't a scare tactic. You know, I'm not trying to scare you into making a decision that I want. I'm trying to tell you what is important or what this actually entails. Yeah. Patients and families in their scenario. Right. You have congestive heart failure and a pneumonia with stage three kidney disease. Your, you know, outcome of CPR and intubation and resuscitation will likely be very poor. And say Mm. you're a diabetic, you're not going to have a great outcome, but meaning like you might still be in the hospital, right? Like you could, we could do all those things and you could even never go home. Right. Right, Not only that, never physically go back to your home. You're not going to go back to your previous quality of life. Right. So that might mean that you're, you can't get off the ventilator. What Mm -hmm. that next means is that you get a breathing tube placed in your throat. What that next means is that you're going to go to a facility and you're not going to go home. Maybe you can never get off of that. And then is that a quality of life you want for yourself? Yeah. And a skill to explain that in a way, one, where patients are receptive to it, two, can actually internalize and understand it. And also mm-hmm. without three, not going too far, right? So if you're, we're just here and we're having a conversation about what resuscitation and intubation means yeah. and you're healthy and fine. Yeah, I can't then tell you, you know, you might have the chance that you're going to live in a nursing facility with a trach. You're going to be like, that's not going to happen to me. I don't, you know, right. Yeah. So it's hard to, you know, you have to be uh, in tune to where the patient is physically, mentally, medically to then appropriately give 
outcomes to what scenarios you might encounter that will be, and then to also explain it in a way that they're going to understand it. I see palliative care and hospice specialists being so critical mm. to be involved because it doesn't just mean it's just for people who are going to die and just means you're going to die because a lot of people see it that way, but it's a person that's giving you an opportunity to have an advocate and show you these, you know, their job is not just to make your life longer where a lot of jobs for doctors is that is our job is to preserve life or make it longer. Um, but, but palliative care I see, and I've heard palliative care doctors say this is that, you know, we don't do treatments that are just going to prolong your life. We, we do, we support treatments and teach you about treatments that will give you a better quality of life. And that might even mean sometimes that your life is shorter. Yes. And you have to have so, that conversation too, right? Can yeah. I, so, cause I know nothing about any of this except watching TV shows. Um, so it almost sounds like you're saying that, okay, there's lots of players in the room in any given kind of medical situation. There's different players, whether they're doctors or nurses or everything in between, but each one almost has like their own, their specialty almost gives them a specific objective or it can make them tend towards a specific modality and mindset in relation to the problem. And you're saying that with palliative care, and the way you're describing it too makes it sound like with palliative care, you're almost less earthbound. <laughs> like you're less like uh, stuck in the science or the binaries, right? Like good or bad, alive, dead. Like it's like, you know, it, it's less in that binary modality where you're like looking at, just like you said, a more holistic approach of like, well, what does this mean to you? And what do you value in life? And what happens after? And what do you prefer? And like, it's like all of this gray area that's like a little mm -hmm. bit above, it's almost like above all this earthly concern. Does that yeah. sound right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, in a way, you're absolutely right. Um, you're right in the sense that um, I, I work in a hospital, so I'm inpatient. Um, and in a given person, there's like three different, maybe consult medical uh, teams taking care of one person. On average, I would say at least three, maybe in their ICU, if right. they're in the ICU, maybe three to five. There's a primary team, there's a pulmonologist, there's a cardiologist, there's a kidney doctor, there's a liver person, there's a GI, there's neuro, you could go on and on and on. Yeah. Um, and you're right, all of these people have a singular view. The kidney doctors looks at the kidneys, the urine output, the numbers and this, the heart person is looking at the heart function, EKGs and this, and they are very narrow-minded. You know, the blood pressure is going up, so give them something to make it come down. The urine right. output is low, give them fluid or give them a diuretic to make them pee. And you can do a lot with medicine you can mm -hmm. do a lot almost for as long as you want. Right. And yeah. yeah. Never thought but, about that. Yeah. And like, ultimately we can still like, we still can't fix everything. So mm -hmm. yes, we can give you a diuretic forever and keep increasing these things right. and keep increasing that and keep giving you this and keep giving you that. 
And you in turn, the patient will endure a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah. And that, if that is what you wish for yourself, that's fine. But if that's not what you wish for, for yourself, we need to do something else. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, no one is taking the time to talk to that person about what they want for themselves. Yeah. That's really where palliative comes in yeah. to say, hey, your primary team is saying this, your cardiology is saying this, your um, kidney doctor is saying that. And what's your understanding? What does this mean to you? And so many times they are completely off the mark. And, Mm. you know, and they're not understanding the severity of what is happening. So then I come in and say, well, if this is what your understanding is, can I tell you what my understanding is? So then I will then, you know, summarize what all of the doctors are saying and say, you know, what I'm concerned about is your failing kidneys, your whatever this, that, or the other. And these are my worries for you. So tell me about what's important to you. What is, what do you value? What is your life like? And it's not so direct. It's more so where do you live? Who do you live with? What did you do for work? What do you do for your hobbies? What are you, where do you have any kids? Do you have grandkids? And then in turn, you'll learn so much about a patient. It's truly just having a conversation. Yeah. And the unfortunate part is that a lot of the time there's just no space for that. And so much so that you need a whole different specialty to take. (laughs) And, you know, in an ideal world, palliative wouldn't really exist because doctors would be equipped to handle this and have the time, space, and energy to do these conversations. Right. To to offer palliative approaches, right? So doctors should be having the skill and training to offer palliative approaches. Mm -hmm. You have heart failure, you know, and you are 82. Mm -hmm. It is your choice whether you want to aggressively treat this with medication Mm -hmm. or you want to let this disease run its course, not change your life at all, knowing that it might be shorter Mm -hmm. with that. And sometimes it's not even right. There's, there's, there's um, evidence in hospice care that sometimes when you essentially let people do whatever they want and you take away the chemotherapy, they live like almost as long as they would with the chemotherapy. Yeah. And they live happier. Yeah. Yeah. They live a better quality of life. Right. For sometimes longer um, or longer than maybe if what would have been if you are, you know, expected to live three months and you sign on to hospice, then, you know, maybe you do live two months and like three weeks and mm-hmm. maybe with treatment, you would have only lived three months. Yeah. Right, like, right. What, what's the, what's the real benefit here? And that's where we yeah. come in to like really talk about what that means. Also, like um, palliative care encompasses hospice. Hospice is not palliative care. Right. Hospice is really just an insurance benefit. And with the understanding that you have a terminal diagnosis with an expected life, uh, life expectancy of less than six months. Okay. So you're expected to live less than six months with whatever you have, a cancer, a, you know. Right kidney disease or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to die in six months. You know, you're evaluated, you can still continue your benefits. 
And um, and those benefits are things like home care, nursing, like nurses that come to your home, um, some type of benefits that happen with hospice care. Yeah, it's a team of doctors, nurses, uh, maybe nurse practitioners, social work, chaplain, um, aides, and volunteers actually as well, Hmm. who come, um, they develop a plan of care that is personalized to you. Also, they provide any medical equipment. Um, They also, one thing that I find amazing is they provide bereavement support for families for up to one year after, um, which is really helpful um, for patients or patients and families because bereavement and grief is a, uh, how do I put it? It's like, um, there's no timeline for grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, just, it doesn't just go away. It's not linear. It fluctuates mm-hmm. and it changes. And yes, you're expected to grieve more, be sad more in the beginning, and maybe it dwindles later, but it's fluctuating. And that can happen at any time. Just because a person, say your spouse or your loved one has died, and just because three months or three weeks have passed doesn't mean that you're just not sad anymore. Just doesn't go away. Or even six months or, you know, a year. year. And, um, you know, it's expected that you will grieve and that support is there for families for actually up to 13 months after Mm -hmm. that person has passed. If you sign I'm, I'm hearing a lot of what sounds like consent, right? Almost like the complexities of respecting a human being's consent when they're put in the hands of medical professionals. Mm-hmm. And the complexity is that most of us don't have a foundational understanding of medical care or what tests mean or what repercussions mean just like you said like do you want us to do you know if your heart stops do you want us to bring you back and people are going to be like yeah that sounds great you know but we don't know so you're almost like helping to interpret and like actually get to the root of does this person actually consent to this or this or this and if they Mm -hmm. had a choice between this or that me now knowing them so much better I can kind of see which way they which way they might choose over something else Mm -hmm. yeah that's fascinating Uh I had going back to ICU stories um, I had a patient one time in the ICU and I believe she had I believe she had multiple myeloma she had some kind of cancer that I can't remember but um, a very advanced cancer she was in the ICU I want to say for a pneumonia um and she was really failing. Um, you know, it's like a, a dog trying to catch its tail. You know, it's just running in circles. You know, one thing happens that leads to something else happening that leads to something else happening. And you're just in this downward trajectory. Yeah. Um, and there were some things that we could do, some things that we couldn't do, but she just, every time a doctor asked her, you know, do you want to continue with this chemotherapy? Do you want to continue with um, this other procedure or this other scan or this other surgery? And she would always just say, yes, she wanted everything done. And to us, this was futile. Like you have no quality of life. You are not, you know, going to really 
walk out of here. So one day I was talking to her and I just was talking to her about her family and we were just having a nice little conversation. And she was like, you know, I know people think I'm crazy for wanting to do everything, Mm -hmm. but my son, his wife is pregnant and she's due next or next week or like within the week or something. And she's like, I just want to see a picture of my grandchild. And I don't care if I ever get to hold them or not, but I just want to know that this baby is born. Yeah. So she had a specific goal in mind. She wasn't, she wasn't futile to her. She wanted everything done because she had this goal. Yeah. And you know, if we just listen Listen. to her talk, you can learn so much. And that happens so often in the ICU. I think that if you just took the time to listen to patients, you can prevent so much unnecessary pain and suffering. And generally people don't want a lot if you explain things correctly. Um, Oh, and also, you know, you can explain everything and they still want everything. And to me, it's like a crazy idea. And I have to ultimately say, this is not my choice. This is not what I would do, but I have to respect this person and their decision and what, why they want to do whatever it is. Yeah. So my removing that and like right. removing the emotional aspect of being too intertwined and taking on that, um, emotion I mean, it's not going to be helpful for me in the long term, but this is not my decision. That's what I have to come back to. And um, yeah, I feel like that's the ultimate respect about people's autonomy. So, so much of things in uh, in medicine are paternalistic. And, you know, we're often trying to tell people, yeah, you know, I know you think that, but, but, right. you know, that's not what's best for you. But even, you're wrong. even, even well-intentioned <laughs> wrong. things, right. Yeah. Even well-intentioned, like we lose the, the respect about that other person being autonomous. Right. So if we really want to help them, mm-hmm. the best thing we can do is to come to wherever they are, meet them where they are, understand them. That's, and that would be the best way to begin that conversation of trying to trying to really help someone. So I see like what you do is that ultimate thing is that, that connection, respect the consent. Yeah. Yeah. And especially being in a hospital, patients lose their autonomy. Mm -hmm. 100%. You're on someone else's timeline. You are half naked in a bed. And you're, you have no privacy. Yes. And there's so many different ways in which they lose their control, their autonomy and all of those things. And Mm. so many, like you, you, this is not, you know, my illness. They, this is this person's illness and diagnosis. And we are here to help you. Yeah. I don't have a say in what happens. I'm here to educate you, to give you the tools to make an informed decision. And whatever your decision is, it's fine because it's yours. Right. So the obvious question I think is 
how do you do this and mm. mentally and emotionally? How do you, even as an ICU nurse, you know, you said you would be spending days and days with one to two patients, getting to know them so well, talking to them. How do you kind of, you know, is it maintaining strong boundaries? Is it doing you know, like how has yoga helped you? Like what is, what is the, the way that you have learned to cope with and deal with and maybe like transform dealing with this really heavy stuff? Uh, yeah, so I learned very quickly in nursing, um, working in trauma uh, way back when that uh, I needed to deal with the emotional aspects of nursing. And I, I saw myself become burnt out and jaded. I saw myself being cynical. Right. I, like, you know, the thing said behind a nurse's station would shock and appall the greater population. Um, <laughs> and it's a coping mechanism. It's not of out course. of ill intent and, you know, malicious intent. It's because this is you know, sometimes the only way to cope with what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, I saw myself change and I hated that. And it was, you know, a combination of things, difficult patients and short staff and, you know, nothing that's not well known now after the, after COVID. Yeah. Um, I realized that, oh, I can't just go on a vacation and just feel better. Like I actually have to mm. do something about this. And I yeah. came across a yoga studio in my neighborhood and I went to a class and it sounds so simple, but the breathing, just breathing thoughtfully and mindfully and intentionally, mm. I like felt like I felt my shoulders just relaxed and I was like okay and it's like hard, I don't know it's hard to explain like how that can be so transformative mm -hmm. unless you experience it I think mm -hmm. I don't know but like I realized that the mindfulness of yoga and the mindful movement with also like some strength building and like the create creative aspects of yoga and sequences and mm -hmm all of those other things I found mm. really interesting and helpful that it was not, again, not just, you know, running 10 miles or not just like lifting heavy weight just to lift heavy weight. There was a connection with mind and body and mm. breath. I don't have to live up in my head, mm. but rather I can like bring it down and process what's happened and recognize that a day has been difficult because of this, this, and this. And though that day was difficult, I don't have to take it any further than this. I can recognize that this has happened and move forward from that and not internalize it and keep it there and feel angry or sadness and guilt or fear or whatever it is, but rather mm -hmm. understand why I feel that way or why what, whatever has happened has made me feel this way and then you know, let it go. And it's not easy always, you know, some things are easier to let go than others and mm. some situations are easier yeah. than others. And it's not just a simple one plus one equals two, but rather just like 
taking it in, understanding why things are happening or why I'm feeling this way to move forward. And yoga helped me to understand what was happening in my work Mm -hmm. and also help me to continue to do my work. Because if not, I would have absolutely quit by now. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's no way to continue in this field without good coping mechanisms. Yeah. I think that's like, um, so interesting that you have those two, that aspect of your life, the self-care, the wellness, that yoga, um, and clearly you've also, and we talk about a lot, like how much work that you've done on yourself, right? So you have to like deal with all, all of these things, your own emotion and baggage. Um, and what I think is really cool too, just like a little braggy from me as your sister is that you're going to teach that to yeah. residents and, and fellows, right? Yeah. Um, people yeah. that are rotating and going to work with you and learn from your team to right. become palliative care doctors are, are going to have this opportunity. Do you want to tell that story of how you got that opportunity to do that? Yeah. So currently in my job, um, uh, to go back maybe just a little bit further than what you're expecting, Mal. But um, when I interviewed for my job that I'm in now, yeah. uh, my boss asked me, um, my now boss rather, uh, asked me, how do you deal with stress or what, your, what are your coping mechanisms? Mm-hmm. And I immediately said, yoga, that has been the way I deal with stress for years now and I enjoy it and it's helpful and I find the benefit of it and I continue with it and I talk to her more about you know what that meant for me and I had an answer really quickly um and after getting the job and after you know then talking to her again um she was like I was really impressed with like how you had that answer and you know we look for that because what we do is really emotionally burdensome. And if you don't have ways to deal with it, you're going to be burnt out and you're going to (laughs) quit and you're not sustainable for not only you, but for us, you know, we don't want to keep hiring people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then after talking to her more about what yoga meant to me and how I, you know, do my own self-care. And she said that, you know, she's like, I want to, implement a program for our fellows where, you know, we can integrate wellness into our program. We have two fellows right now um, where I, we talk about different things and I, you know, teach them about being grounded and um, breath work and things like that. And it's interesting because there's no, huh? That's so cool. I'm yeah. so proud of you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but we talk about difficult patients or difficult scenarios are not only difficult, but like good things that happen. Yeah. We can have so many different outcomes and encounters and you need yeah. to debrief it. And like, understand. where are you today? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, we meet uh, twice a month and, you know, the first time was like, getting an understanding of what their approaches are like second time was you know integrating some breath work and like chair stretches and some chair yoga and then like talking a little bit about what the day or week has been like and how you're 
adapting to now this fellowship role and how things are changing and how do you deal right. with this? And so cool. how do you, <laughs> everybody should have that. Right. You know, medical like, training. We need to talk about things, you know, this mm. is like, yeah. I don't know what do you in saying? nursing. I like, I started to go to therapy as well because it was really hard to deal with the things that we were seeing sometimes. And yeah. I like needed to talk about it in a constructive way, not only yeah. just like venting to a friend or a fellow nurse that will definitely understand what that means, but to constructively talk about it. And it makes me, I did use the words, like when I was thinking about like, how do I distill everything I know about my sister into these like six lines or something? Um, but, you know, I really focused it on just your work and what you're doing now, but I did use the words like embrace, like you have to embrace the ideas of life and that life includes death. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I feel like in your work, that's what you do is you're not afraid of things like terminal diagnoses and death. And a lot of times we go away from that because we don't want to sit in that discomfort right. and we don't know yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. So I wanted to just bring up that word, you know, the, the idea of right. just embracing these things and embracing yeah. Yeah. death. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've like always been like this. It just, it just seemed really natural for me to like prioritize quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. It just seemed logical to me. I think it kind of, I think also like my yoga approach really goes along with this because like life and death, it, it's a cycle. Every living thing will die, you know, today, tomorrow, tomorrow. 10 years from now, 50 years from now, doesn't matter. We're all going to die. We're all born and we're all going to die. I don't know. I don't think death has like ever been like elusive to me. I don't feel any fear around it. And who's to say if I'm like facing my own mortality tomorrow, <laughs> I might have a different approach. Yeah, for moment. sure. But you like, never know. I don't know, but at this moment in time, mm -hmm. I don't find it fearful. I think that, you know, we fear things that are unknown. And yes, this is a huge unknown yeah. of what happens after. And no one can ever tell us in the living world. No one can mm -hmm. ever know what happens. And there's something really magical about that for lack of better words. It's like this elusive unknown that you have no, it's inevitable for all of us. And so yeah. why spend my life fearful of it when I know this is gonna happen? So we, we're all born and we're all gonna die. We have no choice in how we are born, but we have a choice in how oh, we how die. We so why true. can't I take that part of my control mm -hmm. and choose the way and the steps I take that will right. inevitably lead to my death, right? Eventually. Yeah. So, you know, if I, I have control over that, so I don't know, that feels empowering to me yeah. in this huge yeah. event. Right. And yeah, so like understanding more aspects of yoga and how the cycle of life and living and things like that, you know, 
and that combined with this acceptance of the cycle of life yeah just like it helps me to do this job it feels natural it does feel natural yeah. it feels like natural work yeah 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 this was fun I have to always <laughs> I have to give a judgment and it has to be positive I love that about you Mal, I really tried not to say a lot. <laughs> you know, yeah, you did it. It was good balance. I did that on purpose. <laughs> it was so good to see you. I know, I miss you. you. I'm so yeah. glad that we got to chit chat. Yeah. All right, I'm really <laughs> going to leave now. I love yeah. you both. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, Mal. Thanks for listening to Midnight Revolution with Melissa Joyce Khan and Catherine Akiko Day. Our music is by Alishaba Etoop. Like, follow, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcast.